do appreciate everyone's presence today. We're glad you're here. Appreciate those who have led us in our worship this morning. And our hope is that uh, things we've been done have been edifying and uplifting for us today. And uh, as we've worshiped together and sincerely and in, in truth, and uh, trust that that's been the case with each one of us. I invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Micah today, the book of Micah. I don't preach from Micah very often. Uh, one of those minor prophets sort of toward the end of the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to take a look at a passage found there this morning. Now, here's a representation of Micah on the, the screen up here. When I picked out this picture, I noticed something about him. He's, he's looking right at me. <laughs> if you're sitting over here, he's looking at you. It's one of those paintings where the subject follows you wherever you go. So just know that. Just be aware of that. If you doze off a little bit, just know that he's watching you. So maybe that'll help you this morning. So we talk about a passage in Micah today. I appreciate my brother Bynes' uh, words about the temple this morning. So I want to think a little bit about about the temple. You know, the amount of material that's devoted in the Old Testament to the sacrificial system suggests how important it was to Israel. Two large sections in the book of Exodus, two sections, are devoted to the preparation and instruction and construction of the tabernacle. Long passages in the book of Leviticus describe in detail the kinds of animals that were to be offered in sacrifice and the procedure with which they were to be offered. There were daily sacrifices that were to be made in Israel, weekly sacrifices, monthly sacrifices, and yearly sacrifices. There were burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, peace offerings. There were meal offerings and drink offerings. There were thank offerings, vow offerings, and free will offerings. All that suggests to us how important this sacrificial system was in Israel. There was a special class of men set aside to devote themselves. Their, their, their work was to learn about these sacrifices and spend their life offering these sacrifices to God. They were to meet rigorous qualifications. Certain men, though they might be qualified in some areas, would not be qualified in others. And so they were not to serve as priests if that were the case. The temple building itself, when it was built, the temple building must have been the focal point, the most important structure, the most important building in Israel. Sort of the center of the entire nation, the temple there in Jerusalem. It was where God met man, as Brother Bryant brought out to us in his comments as we prepared to take of the Lord's Supper. It's where atonement was made. Again, where God met man. So given all of that, given all that information about the temple, the sacrificial system, and all that went along with it, it is, I imagine it was easy for the Israelites to become confused about what God wanted from them. Many of them may have thought, as long as the temple is still standing, as long as the temple is there, as long as there's a priesthood, as long as they're offering these daily, weekly, monthly, annual sacrifices, well then, we're, we're good with God. 
You get that idea when you read, for example, Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah is really talking about the downfall of Judah and Jerusalem and the things that they had done wrong. But in uh, the first part of that, that passage, he tells them not to say any longer, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It seemed that their idea was, as long as the temple is standing, we're in good shape. There's the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord's right there. That's an indication that God is with us. That's God's dwelling place. In Isaiah chapter 1, you remember that Isaiah tells Israel, or really God speaking through Isaiah, that I've had enough of your sacrifices. Look at what he says uh, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 1. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? And so they were coming, coming in large numbers, coming in droves to offer these sacrifices. And no doubt they thought, as long as I make the sacrifice, as long as I go to the temple, the dwelling place of God, we are in good standing with God. Of course, the temple and the sacrificial system was important or were important. As we said a moment ago, that was the method by which atonement for sin was made, which to a conscientious Israelite would have been of the utmost importance. They even looked forward to the coming Christ. As Brother Bryant brought out, the sacrificial system and the temple looks forward to the greater temple, Christ, and His greater sacrifice. But they don't constitute the fullness or the essence of what God desired. The temple, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, as good and as important as those things were, is not the essence of what God desired from people. Now that's brought out in the 50th Psalm and verse 12. God says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. What am I going to do with a sacrifice? In a sense, is what God's saying. What am I going to do with the blood of bulls and goats? I'm going to drink it? I'm going to eat that? Well, of course not. <laughs> and, 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 and so, as important as these things were in Israel, not the essence, not the fullness of what God requires. Now David understood that. Look at the 51st Psalm and verse 14, a psalm which we're told was written following David's sin with Bathsheba. He says in verse 16, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at several statements that sort of sum up or summarize what God wants from us, what our duty before God is. You might remember that we began all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and to love Him, 
to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. What does the Lord require of you? The, the, these things. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Then we went to the book of Psalms. You might remember this passage from the 34th Psalm. The psalmist says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life? Love length of days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. After that, we went to the book of Proverbs. Again, a passage that summarizes what God wants from us. And these are not the only passages in the Bible that do this. They're a sampling, of course, and you might be able to think of others. But Proverbs chapter 3 and verse, and verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Again, another passage that summarizes our duty before God. Last week we looked at Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Now, the next installment in this series of passages is found in Micah, Micah chapter 6. Now, Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. Remember, we studied that when we were studying Isaiah. We talked about those 8th century prophets. Same conditions that existed in Israel's time existed in Micah times. They, at least their lifetimes overlapped or were in close proximity to each other. And so, in some ways, they experienced very good times economically, I think, and politically. Uh, things in Israel during that century, maybe not through the entire century, but at least in portions of it, were very good, but spiritually very, very bad. And Micah deals with that just like Isaiah does. Micah deals with that situation. In Micah 6 and verse 6, he says this, raises this question, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? It's a good question, isn't it? With what shall I come before the Lord? Well, what have I got that I can offer the Lord? Well, it goes on. Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings and yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So that's what we're going to talk about in our the time that we have list, left this morning. And so here's, here's the question. With what shall I come to the Lord? What have I got to offer the Lord? What is it that I can bring to Him that will, will please Him? And he suggests a couple, of, a couple of possibilities. Animal sacrifices. Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? It appears, as we've already seen, that many in Israel thought this is what God actually wanted. 
We saw that from Isaiah chapter 1. They're trampling his courts. They're, they're coming to the temple. They're offering their sacrifices. They're going through the motions. They're going through the routine as if this was what God would be pleased with. And, of course, simply going through the motions of offering these sacrifices was not pleasing to God at all. We saw where David understood that. You know, you want sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You want a broken heart is what you want. And Micah sees that as well, doesn't he? The, the, the question is rhetorical. What does God want? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings and yearling calves? Well, well, no, that's not really what God wants from us. As important as that was in Israel, that wasn't what God actually really essentially wanted. Well, there's another possibility that he raises here at the end of verse 7. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Apparently there were some in Israel and Judah who thought that's what would please the gods. If you go over to 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 17, there you find one of the reasons that Israel fell. You remember Micah is addressing Israel in his prophecy one of the reasons is felt because they're offering their children as burnt offerings. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practice divination and enchantments and sow themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him. And so apparently some thought that that's a good thing. Sacrifice your own children. Make them pass through the fire. See it being done in Jeremiah's day as well. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 31. Is that what God wanted? Is that what, what would please God for Micah to bring his own son, the fruit of his body, to the Lord in sacrifice? No, no. It's not what God wants. That raises this question. What do you and I have that we can bring to God that will please Him? Well, what have I got that I can offer God? If I want to make atonement for my sin... If, if my sin, my transgression disturbs me, and I know it disturbs God, what can I bring to Him and give to Him that will satisfy His, His wrath against me because of my sin? What have I got? If I want to show Him the level of my commitment, God, I'm going to show you that I am fully committed to you. Here's what I've got to show you. To show you. Well, what have I got to give Him? What have you got to give Him if you want to show Him that? If you want to express your gratitude to God, God, I am so thankful for all the things you've given me, all the blessings that I have. Let me show you how grateful I am. Here's a gift that I'm going to give. What is it? What would you give? Some, some money? An amount of money? A hundred dollars? A thousand dollars? Ten thousand. God, here's ten thousand dollars. I want to. I want to atone for my sin. I want to show you how grateful I am. I'll show you how committed I am to you. God's going to say, what am I going to do with your money? Everything is already mine. I don't need your money. <laughs> you know? Now, as important as that is to contribute on the first day of the week, that's not essentially what God wants from us. Maybe it's some valuable possession I've got. Maybe it's my Thurman Munson rookie card that I'd like to think is worth $35,000, but it's really only worth about $35. <laughs> Maybe it's some sort of precious possession now, that's not what God wants from us. Not really. Maybe it's some particular thing. Maybe it's a small thing that God needs that I've got and I can bring it to Him and, and He'll be pleased with me because I've given that to Him. Well, well, of course not. 
It's obvious to us that God doesn't want anything from us, does He? God doesn't want anything that we could offer Him. No amount of money, no particular thing, no child sacrifice. He doesn't, but He does want something from us, but, but not those things. So what does He want? Well, again, He's told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice. You know, justice is a chief feature of the American culture. Justice is fair treatment, to be treated fairly or treat people fairly or treat people impartially. And, and it's, it's an important part of our, our American culture. We recited the Pledge of Allegiance when I was a kid. I think they still do that. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. You know, we talk about American values and maybe spreading American values or upholding American values. Justice is one of those values, isn't it? Liberty and justice for all. We, we believe in that. Uh, we, we hold to that. We want to promote that and support that. We hear a lot about justice in political contexts. It's so important to us that the politicians who are running will run on that. Look, I want to bring justice to everybody. Vote for me. We hear about an illegal context as well. Somebody commits a crime and so our interest is in that justice be done. Now, we're not so interested in political context or legal context. We're not unconcerned about that. We're citizens of this country. But in this case, we're interested in it because it's a Bible subject. You know, the Bible talks about justice often, frequently. We know last week when we looked at this word, it occurs 400 times in in the Old Testament. 400 times. And so justice is not simply a political subject or a legal subject. It is a biblical subject. Look back over the course of your life and the sermons that you've heard. You've heard lots of sermons on lots of different things. How many sermons have you heard? We need to do justice. Maybe, maybe you've heard a lot, but I don't know that I heard a lot growing up. And I heard a lot of sermons growing up. Our interest is in that we do justice that we do justice in our own lives. Again, not so concerned in this, uh, this, this context, this setting, with what we do politically or governmentally or legally. I'm interested in the people here doing justice. And in this church administering justice as well. And what is justice? Treating people fairly. Treating people impartially. So the subject is a big one. It's just one of those subjects that I feel like, well, you know, how can I take this and kind of condense it down into a few minutes uh, uh, discussion? We'll just make some observations. That's about as good as I can do, I suppose. God is always just as He deals with us. Always. God is always just in His dealing with us. You know, sometimes we think, you know, God, that's just not fair. It's just not fair what you're doing. No, no, we're wrong about that. God is always just. Now we might understand His sense of justice, and we might need to bring into alignment our sense of justice with His, but God is always just in the way He deals with us. Remember Genesis chapter 18, God has told Abraham, 
I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom. Well, that's a problem for Abraham because his nephew lives there, Lot. And remember what Abraham does? He begins to dialogue with God. He sort of enter, enter, enters into this negotiation. But all of that is, uh, is uh, uh, introduced with this conversation between Abraham and God. Abraham says, would you destroy the, the righteous with the wicked? God, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Is that just for you to treat the righteous in the same way that you treat the wicked. And so here are the wicked, they're over here grossly in sin, and you're going to destroy them. But here are some people, they're trying to do what's right, and you're going to treat them one just like the others. Is, is that just? Will not the, the God of all the earth do justly? Well, of course he will. And finally, God agrees with Abraham. If you can find ten righteous people, I'll spare, I will spare the city which... Abraham was unable to do, of course. But it simply shows us that God is just in what He does. The 89th Psalm, verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So I think about the throne room, and maybe there's a platform like this, and, and there's, a, there's a throne on the platform. What's the platform made of? <laughs> the foundation of the throne. Righteousness and justice. We talked about how those two words are grouped together in the Old Testament a lot, and there are a lot of overlap, virtually synonyms, if not synonyms. God justice, God judges according to righteousness. The 35th Psalm, verse 24, judge me according to your righteousness, the psalmist says. Even when being merciful, God is just. You know, it would not be just, would it? For God to just say in forgiving sin, well, I, I'm going to forgive you. I'm, I'm just going to just overlook that. And, but, but you, I'm, I'm going to hold you to your sin. That wouldn't be just, would it? There's got to be some foundation that justifies God in forgiving. You know what that is? That's the cross, isn't it? So in Romans chapter 3, as Paul considers the cross, he describes God as just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So even when God forgives, even when He exercises and ministers mercy, He does it with justice. He does it justly. And if God is a God of justice, well then we ought, as His children, to be just and fair with our fellow man. The 106th Psalm, verse 3, How blessed are those who keep justice. In Leviticus chapter 24, verses 19 through 20, if two men get into a fight and, and one suffers a fracture, one guy knocks the tooth out of the head of the other guy, all right, fracture for fracture, tooth for tooth, eye for eye. And so that, in some ways, that limits the, the kind of and the amount of, the degree of retaliation that can be imposed on the other person. I knock your tooth out, it's not two teeth for one, it's one for one, and no more than that. And so that's justice. And so we ought to be just in our behavior toward each other. Leviticus 19, verse 15, you're to have just weights and measures. You know, you don't have to teach your, uh, your, your brethren. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Don't judge according to appearance. Judge righteous judgment. And so we must be just according to God's standard of right behavior. Not man's standard, not culture's standard, not the government's standard, not society's standard. But we must think biblically about justice. 
We must see our fellow man as God sees him and act accordingly. So let me ask a few questions. Does God favor or disfavor? Or does God grant a man an advantage or put him at a disadvantage because of his wealth? Does God do that? I'm going to favor this guy because he's got more money, and this guy, he's at a disadvantage because he's got less. Does God do that? Does God favor or disfavor or put a man at advantage or put him at disadvantage because of his race? Well, I'm going to favor this race. I'm going to disfavor this one. Does God do that? Does God favor a person or give a man an advantage or put him at a disadvantage because of his intellect? This guy's really bright. This guy's not so bright. And so I'm going to give him the advantage. I'm going to put him at a disadvantage in some way. How about according to his job or his position in the community or his family tree? Well, of course not. We, we know the answer to that. Acts chapter 10, Peter tells Cornelius that God is not a respecter of persons, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what's right is welcome to him, regardless of his wealth, regardless of his race, regardless of his intellect, regardless of his position in the community. Fear God and do what's right, and you're acceptable to God. And if God doesn't make these kinds of distinctions between human beings, neither should we. James chapter 2 and verse 9 says, listen to this, James 2 verse 9, If you show partiality, you are committing sin. It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Galatians 3 verse 28 there's neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male or female. All are one in Christ. One more observation about that. Time's getting away. I noticed this from Job chapter 29, passage that we looked at last week. But Job chapter 29, Job is saying, you know, I, I wish things were the way they used to be when I was... Uh, you know, I was strong and healthy and serving God, and I was helping people. And he talks about how he was, uh, you know, uh, an aid to the poor and those who are in, in need and so forth. The orphan, the poor, you see that in verse 12. Verse 15, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I investigated the case which I did not know. Hmm, that's interesting. You see, knowing what the just thing to do is sometimes, it's a little bit hard to figure out. Sometimes we have to dig a little deeper than the surface. We have to investigate a little bit. That's what Job said. I investigated the case I didn't know. And so sometimes that's what we need to do, to find out the right thing to do. What does the Lord require of us? Do justice. It's something that we need to do, by the way, not just something we need to think about, it's something we need to do. And then he says to love kindness. This is that loyal love we talk about sometimes and occurs so often in the Old Testament. We see it in the relationship between David and Jonathan and Boaz and Ruth. It seems sometimes the love portion of this word is emphasized, so that's what you have here, love kindness or mercy, the King James Version says. Sometimes the loyalty aspect of it is emphasized. It's the kind treatment of our fellow man based on our common condition. What is our common condition? We're all made in the image of God. 
And we're all fallible, mortal, sinful people. And so it's that, that kindness, that disposition of kindness directed toward our fellow man because we're all in the same boat. You're a man made or a woman made in the image of God and you're fallible and you've fallen into sin. Here, let me help you. You're mortal. You're limited. You have problems. Let me see if I can help you. That's the idea here. I thought about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient toward all. Things were bad in Micah's day. If you go back to Micah chapter 3 and read a few verses there, you can see just exactly how bad they, they were. Uh, he says, uh, beginning in, in verse 1, And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones? who eat the flesh of my people and strip off their skin from them, break their bones and chop them up as for the pot and as meat for in a kettle, you know. You need to love kindness. <laughs> That's the situation in, in Israel at the time. This is an, an important message. But you know, it's a message that's needed today in our situation as well. We need to love kindness. I think social media has pulled the curtain back and revealed our true character. You know, when you can act and write and speak with anonymity, you can let your true self come out. And that, I think to some degree, to a large degree, that's exactly what has happened. A lot of hate-filled rhetoric online, I think. A lot of uh, unkind, rude, mean-spirited, insulting things. A lot of bullying going on. We, we need to love kindness. Mercy, kindness, is not an option. It's not an option. <laughs> it's a requirement. What does the Lord require from you? Love, kindness. Whenever my sisters and I would get into an argument, I would hear my mother say, Ephesians 4, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. One of the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, verse 22, is kindness. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, add to your faith virtue and so forth, one of those, kindness. Galatians chapter 6 reminds us that even when correcting others, we need to try to do it with kindness. We're to restore such a one that needs that correction in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. And so it's a message that's needed today. So whenever the opportunity arises for you to do something kind, do it. Whenever there's an opportunity to speak a kind word, do it. And don't, don't just wait for those opportunities to arise. Seek out opportunities to do kindness. And there, there, there are lots of them out there. <laughs> Just look for them and take advantage of those. Well, the third thing that he says here is to walk humbly with your God. We read in Genesis chapter 6 that Noah walked with God, verse 9. Genesis 5, 22 and 24, that Enoch walked with God. When I was thinking about this, I thought about a scene from Les Miserables. You know that 
it's a Broadway show. It's, they've made movies out of it, but it is a book. I read the book years, years ago, and there's a particular scene in, in the book that's especially powerful. There's a young girl named Cassette. At this point in the story, she's a little girl. She's one of the main characters in the story. But at this point, I think she's seven years old. And uh, her mother dies. Father's not in the picture. And so this, this family takes little Cassette in. And they, oh, they're mean. They are bad people. You know? In the Broadway musical, they're the, the comedy. But in the book, oh, they're, they're terrible people. They mistreat her. They abuse her. They neglect her. She's dressed in rags. She doesn't have the things that she needs. Well, the main character in the story, Jean Valjean, he finds out about that. He has a connection to the little girl. He finds out about what she's going through. And so he's going to go in there and he's going to rescue her. It takes a, a little while. He's got to negotiate with that family. But they uh, reach an, an agreement. And, and one morning he, he takes her out. He says they're walking along the way. This man, he's a big, strong man. And this little girl, seven years old, they're walking along the way, and it felt like she was walking near God. Well, that's, that's pretty powerful. <laughs> what would it mean for us to walk with God? No more fear. No more worry about being provided for. Only safety and security. Contentment. Inner peace. Only and always love. That's what it would be to walk with God. Now, there's some responsibility that comes with this idea. In order for us to walk with God, we must walk in His way. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 32. And this idea is found frequently, in, especially in the Old Testament, that we are to walk in God's way or walk according to His way. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 23. Uh, it's just, it just says, this, this has to do with uh, Moses interceding for the people, but they were to walk with God. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 16, walk in the way that I, or walk in His law. 2 Chronicles 6 verse 16, walk in His law. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 23, walk in all the way that I command you. So walk in His ways. Walk in all the way that I command you. Walk in His laws. Now in other sermons we'll fill out the details of what that means to walk in His ways and walk in His commandments and walk in His laws. In the New Testament it would be follow in the steps of Jesus. He left us an example that we should follow in His steps. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. To walk humbly with... We receive the benefit of that, but there's some responsibility on our part as well. We need to live according to His law. We need to keep His ways. We need to obey His commands. We cannot walk with God without doing these things. And we shouldn't convince ourselves that we are walking with God if we're not doing these things, right? Sometimes people do that. Oh, I'm walking with God. They have no more regard for what God commands than the man in the moon. And yet if you ask them, yeah, I walk with God, no. We shouldn't, shouldn't try to convince ourselves that we are if we're not. So what does God require of us? To walk with Him, to walk in His ways, to walk according to His commands. 
And it may be that human beings have a tendency to become puffed up about their righteous conduct and arrogant. And I guess an arrogant person might claim to walk with God, but in all likelihood he doesn't. Think about the Pharisee and the publican that went down to the temple to pray. The arrogant Pharisee, I'm sure he thought he was walking with God, but he wasn't. It was the publican who wouldn't lift up his eyes to heaven and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner that was walking with God. You know, I think when we understand that if we walk with God, it's because He allows us to. We'll have no trouble. When we understand that, that I walk with God because He allows me to, I won't have any trouble walking humbly with God. So what does God require of us? What do we have to bring to God that, that would appease Him, uh, that might show Him the level of our commitment, that, that we might express our gratitude? What, what do we have that we could bring Him? No, no thing. But He does want something from us. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the opportunity to come together this morning and to worship you. We pray, Father, that the things we've done today have been pleasing to you. Our sole interest in coming together today is to build one another up in the faith as we worship you in spirit and truth. And we pray, Father, that we've accomplished that this morning. Father, help us to understand what you want from us. Help us to see it. Help us to understand that we to do justice. We're to love kindness. We're to walk humbly with you. Father, if we need to make corrections in our lives, or if we've fallen short in any of those areas, Father, we pray that you'll help us to see those things so that we can correct them, so that we can be the kind of people that you would have us to be. We pray, Father, that you'll be patient with us, long-suffering toward us, we pray that you'll continue to work in our lives to shape us and to mold us so that we become more and more like your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.